Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In today's episode, we have the opportunity to visit with Dr. Ruth Williams. Dr. Williams is the past president of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and current chief medical editor of the iNet magazine. We will talk to her about leadership, changes in healthcare, practice management, and the culture and community in ophthalmology. Dr. Ruth Williams is a glaucoma specialist and nationally and internationally recognized leader in ophthalmology. Dr. Williams is the president emeritus of the Wheaton Eye Clinic in Illinois, one of the largest multi-specialty group practices in the Midwest, past AAO president, and now chief medical editor of iNet Magazine. We are delighted to sit down with her today. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks Andrea for being Eric. here. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We're just thrilled that you're here in the studio. Thank you. I have so many things I want to talk with you about. I'm a huge fan, and I feel like I've read a ton of things that you've written and watched any video of you interviewing, and everything you say is such wisdom to me. I want to really talk about leadership, your views on leadership. I want to talk about how you've seen ophthalmology change over the years. I think you've really had your finger on the pulse of kind of the community of ophthalmology. So we'll kind of be all over the place. Great. I, yeah, I think that'll be really good for, yeah, for all of us. Let's just start with leadership, because some of my favorite talks from you have been about leadership, and you've worn a lot of different leader hats over the years. So what do you think it means to be a leader today? And then how do you think that's changed from the past, what it was to be a leader 20 years ago versus 100 years ago? And where are we going? Oh, that's a great question because I do think leadership styles have changed over time. I'm not an expert on 100 years ago, <laughs> but I would say that earlier on in my career, leadership was a more of a top-down kind of model where the leader set the policy and everybody else got in line. And there, there's an element to that that's still important. A leader sets the agenda and the strategy, but I see such a shift toward collaborative engagement with people and a very wise leader knows that he or she can only really be great if everyone on the team is contributing and working and sometimes working independently. I really think a leader's job now is to set the culture and set the strategy and to bring resources so that people can do their work. You've, you've had some special opportunities and challenges in your leadership. The Wheaton Eye Clinic is a large multi-specialty practice and you have different offices. And I imagine each place, whether built up or acquired, has its own dynamics and people and communication. You just mentioned two things, culture and strategy. And I've heard in my time something that rings true, which is culture eats strategy. Meaning you can have a great strategy, but if it's not in some way aligned with the culture, it won't work. And if your strategy is in, fits with the culture of that place, it will. So talk about in your experiences, times in which are reflections on how to, you, when you have a situation you know you need to change, how do you see them in parallel working together or how do you work on strategy when the culture isn't quite where you want it to be? Well, oh, I love this question. First of all, that's a Drucker quote that I love and I, I've amended it and say, you know, that culture and process 
eat strategy for lunch. So process is important too, because you can never get to your strategy if you just really aren't doing things in a stepwise and methodical way. Strategy is the infrastructure. It's the foundation. It's the pylons that go down deep into the earth of our organizations. And there are two parts to culture, the parts that we're not really aware of that just kind of happen. But I think a good leader is very intentional about defining what the core values of an organization are, putting them on paper, putting them out, making sure everybody knows that this is who we are and this is what we're about and reminding us because we need reminding. And then there are very technical things that we can do to build that culture. I think the pandemic in some ways has eroded culture simply because we're not socializing. So it's the relationships we have with our colleagues are very important. And one of the ways that we build those relationships is by what we're doing today, talking, having meals together, interacting, and, and those are all culture building things. Strategy is what you do thinking into the future. You do it in strategy sessions with your board. You do it at home, in the shower, thinking about where do I want this organization to go, and you write it down. But culture is the lifeblood of it. And the best cultures are the things that we're being told, especially recently, that have integrity, that empower its people, that respect all its people, and listen to the diverse voices. And when you can do that, you empower people, and they care, and they're engaged, and they want to make your strategy happen. You can't do it by yourself. I am hearing so much of this from a resident education perspective because that's what I'm passionate about, and I feel like culture is everything there, and that's where your hard work and your passion from the residents all come. It all kind of brews down to culture. Do you think this is more institution-specific, not just with resident education, but just how the practice functions? Is it more of a monoculture, or do you see this across ophthalmology as a whole within our whole community? I think it's both. Both. So when I came to Mayo Clinic today, Within three minutes of being in your room, actually even before that, when I met with Sophie Bakri this morning, within five minutes I was getting a sense of the culture, who Mayo Clinic is, and you know, spending the morning here, I have a really good idea already of what's important to this organization and how you go about cultivating it. It even plays out in things like how your clinic is laid out how your guests are treated when they arrive, which by the way is extraordinary. So I get that. But yes, Andrea, I do think there's a culture of ophthalmology and I love it. We are a people of energy, of hope, of commitment, of excellence. And it kind of permeates through all parts of not all parts because there are some dark parts about you know in our culture too like everybody i mean we have those people but in the big picture this is a group of people that are the best people and it shows Mm. and so i think that starts with resident education and the way we train our residents by the way i'll say the young people we're hiring are so well trained and so smart and such good people it just makes me happy Mm. So yes, ophthalmology is a special culture. That's great. It's wonderful to go um, and, and experience different practices and different mm-hmm. institutions. And and I agree, there's just this sense, even in interviewing as a resident or a fellow, you sort of feel this vibe when you're in each location. 
I've always been struck by how much of the culture is defined by people outside of our own clinic and operating rooms. It's you know critical that as for us as an ophthalmologist, it's critical that we deliver care in a way that's has compassion and has, shows mm-hmm. joy and hope and but so much of the culture is affected in as a patient experiences the front desk or yes. our billing teams oh, yeah. or yes. someone in the elevator or someone in the parking lot. And so as you've led your organization at Wheaton, which is known to have a phenomenal culture and experience for patients too, what did you do as a leader to try to cultivate that culture outside of just the people closest to the physicians? The Academy has a center called the Mike Redmond Center for Ethics and Professionalism. And Mike passed away some years ago, but he led a big multi-specialty group in Florida, and I've forgotten how many physicians, but maybe 800. So it was a big organization. And when he took over that organization, they had a motto, and it was Florida you know, medical group, a great place to be a physician and a great place to be a patient. What Mike Redmond did was he changed that motto to say, Florida Medical Group, a great place to be a physician, a great place to be an employee, mm-hmm. and a great place to be a, a patient. patient. And I, that really impacted me. It was a simple thing. He told me that. It probably took him two minutes to tell me that story. And yet it impacted me so profoundly because I thought, I want this place to be a great place to be an employee. So that just became something that was important. One of the things I'm most proud of from my years of being president of the eye clinic was that we provided great health insurance to you know over 200 families, 240 families. At a time when health insurance costs were going up, we absorbed all those increases. And so the, when we gave raises, they were true raises because we kept our health care costs sure. steady for 10 years. Wow. And I'm super proud of that. And I felt like we were taking good care of our people. Yeah, that's tremendous. It was a huge effort to stay as a, as a physician-run practice through all the changes in healthcare, right? And all the changes that we're seeing now. For a while, I think it was more common for people to go out into practice after training and join big group practices. Now I feel like we're seeing more people go into solo practice, yes. which is fascinating. What's happening in that landscape? And where do you think it's going? What's going to happen with Wheaton? I don't know what will happen to us in the future, but I can tell you what's happening in real time. Even before the private equity came into the markets, this was probably 10 plus years ago when the hospitals were trying to buy organizations and ours was no different. Several systems were trying to buy us. And so I walked the group through a white paper that I prepared of this is what life looks like if we sell to the hospital at that time. And this is what life looks like if we remain independent. And then we repeated that process again when private equity came knocking and still knocks. I let the group decide, you know, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And of course they wanted to remain independent, but here are the problems we have to solve. And one of them was the transition of equity. And the other one is how do we run this place into the future? And if we run this place, we have to have broad, wide leadership from our mid-career physicians. Mm -hmm. And we put some strategies in place to engage them, to train them, to get the physicians running this practice. 
And we do. And we are solving the equity transition challenge, which actually makes us a better organization because we're very broadly owned now. Mm -hmm. And I also have talked over and over again to the young women and said, something I believe very strongly, is that you should own your own business. You should own the land the building is built on. Mm -hmm. You should own the eye surgery center. Our place is equally owned by the men and the women now. I think it creates a sustainable model. That's so fantastic. It also makes me think, I know we were all talking earlier, we all are hobby farm enthusiasts. Yes, either run us. Right, we are the farmers of the group here, the gardeners and the farmers, um, talking about farm animals, and it's so great. And I've been getting really into permaculture. I've been reading a lot and oh. listening to a bunch of permaculture podcasts. And one of the tenets is um, the problem is the solution. And I oh, love that. Yeah. And I've been thinking about it so deeply because for us, you know, our house is on a hill and all the land is the hill. And it makes a lot of things really challenging. And so I've been thinking, how can I turn the hill into the solution and make it all work only because it's on a hill? And that's exactly what you're exemplifying in in what you've taken as, well, here's our issue, but how can we actually make that the strength? Yes. And that's key, but it's really hard. It's very hard. And, you know, when we're talking about culture, you know, a leader can't solve it. A leader can only engage the people to do the solution. And it's it's the group that came up with the solution. They said, yeah, yeah we want to do this. And, oh, yeah, we see that in order to have the outcome we want, we have to show up, you know, with our time, our energy, learning practice management, and our cash. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Really, really good. And I think it's sustainable long beyond when private equity is going to get tired of healthcare. That's one person's opinion. I like it. How it'd be wonderful to capture that journey in in or maybe it has been in ways I'm not aware, of, but to help other practices going through that because they they all have different levels of support or lack of support over the decisions that are being handled. They all have different leadership experiences. And, and just the, the success that you've looked reflected on looking back at Wheaton's journey through those currents of change, I would think would be of interest in ways to share from a management perspective with other practices. Yeah, I would love to help other groups do what we've done and you know we've experienced what most of the problems are. One of the things a group has to do is value the organization above individual interests and know that a thriving organization in the end serves everybody's interests. And if you can create that idea that what's good for the group is good for you in the long term, maybe not in the short term, Mm -hmm. but in the long term, it's good for all of us. I think one of the things that makes us happy in life is when we're invested in things that are bigger than our own selves. And ophthalmology practice is like that. Being part of Mayo Clinic organization, ophthalmology department is bigger than you know the individual physician. Yeah, we've been. I've been struck coming to Mayo Clinic. We generally don't have diplomas on walls. Yeah, and outward-facing locations, and you you sort of check your personal um, egos at the door, and you're part of an enterprise that is delivering quality in a way that uh, together we can do stronger than individually. Yeah, that's cool. So. Yeah, I think that whole concept of working for something bigger than you and goals bigger than you brings so much fulfillment. I want to take that and kind of segue into some discussion on wellness, 
burnout. <laughs> this is an, it's exhausting to even talk about, but I really value your thoughts and I know you've talked about it a lot before. We've talked about kind of right. moral injury and how the pandemic shaped all of that. It's such a difficult topic to approach and I feel like people are almost burned out about talking about burnout. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. So what do we do? How do we fix it? Well, first of all, I'm a, a burnout uh, convert. Um, early in my career, if you had talked to me about burnout, I probably would have rolled my eyes and go, come on, buck up. Right, you know? just work I mean, harder. Yeah, Get over we're it. Hard, you know, come on, we're hard workers, quit whining. But right. I, I am a, a complete convert, let me say, into having experienced it myself during the pandemic and watching it in other people. So how do we guard ourselves and our energy levels and the things that are really valuable to us? I don't know the answer, but let me just tell you one thing I've done in my personal life. And again, this happened by accident. I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to figure this out or, and this was when I was president of the academy. Super, super busy, had kids at home. I had a trip two weekends in a row to San Francisco and one of them extended till Monday. And so I was like, wait a minute, I'm not gonna fly home on Tuesday and back on Thursday night. Mm -hmm. So uh, Susan Day offered to let me use her house up at Sea Ranch. So I thought, great, I'll go up there and work for three days. I couldn't get the internet to work. So I'm stranded on the beach in Northern California by myself, can't get my laptop the internet to work and so what do I do I know like that sounds (laughs) well I was actually a little terrified (laughs) I've never spent three days by myself so I walked on the beach I journaled I wrote out what I wanted in life I started a practice that three days of uh, writing down my priorities and then like putting them in order and saying what I really wanted out of life like what do you really really want to do I now do it once a year, not for three days, but I try to do once a year an alone retreat where I just spend time alone and think about what's important to me, what do I want, what things are less important, what can I chop off at the bottom, and where am I going, mm-hmm. and you know how am I going to do this. It's so life-giving, plus I walk a lot and spend time, so it's awesome to spend time alone. Something, Andrea, you can't do to your kids a little older. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Never alone. (laughs) That is a wonderful reflection just because we get so pulled and we all open our in-baskets or emails. We're opening our phones and there's just everything is being constantly thrown at us and we're reacting to Mm -hmm. the the schedules of the day and things that aren't even supposed to be on that schedule. Um, But the intentionality of just thoughtful reflection and writing down and sort of laying out a, 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 a you know that your priorities helps you align time my wife after I don't know how many years of marriage I one weekend she said we're having a state of our marriage state of our union oh, address that's great and she had a plan for the kids and the like the house got locked down and and I was thinking look at this list and she had everything laid out on every detail of individual and lives together financially and management all these things and at first it was sort of this daunting list of state of our union Mm -hmm. address between us Mm -hmm. and it was that sort of thing that you're describing individually professionally doing Mm -hmm. and the mechanics of doing that once a year is just a vital tool Mm -hmm. to help us make sure our reaction day-to-day and our schedules day-to-day reflect those priorities you know john chen and i had such a great talk this morning and one thing I was saying to him is that I think early on in your career 
you probably should say yes to right. things and then do a really good job because you don't know where your career is going and you don't know what's going to open doors and not open doors. And so I, I actually think you can say yes to things. And in a sense, your career is externally pushed. You're yep. pushed by what someone else thinks you'd be good at. Oh, you know, can you speak at this top, at this meeting? Yeah, sure. Right. Even if it's a topic you don't know that much about, you, you say yes. But as you get farther into your career, I think that we should become more internally motivated, meaning what exactly do I want to do and what things am I going to say no to because they rob from those top four things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I That resonates with me so much because being junior faculty, I've been in that mindset of I say yes to basically everything. Mm -hmm. But I also feel so strongly about the importance of family and time away from home and I know mm -hmm. we were talking about this last night that I think I'm probably outspoken on this but I don't keep my email on my phone I don't check my work email when I'm home I don't check my email over the weekend I mean maybe I'll eyeball it just to make sure there's not an emergency but but I basically don't work when I'm home I do farm work when I'm home <laughs> you work <laughs> I work yeah kids, work. kids work, work and cooking and clean and housework yeah, yeah so I work really hard at home and then I come to work and, and work at work and I so badly want that to be more normal because I'm a little ashamed that I'm not available 24-7 but I also think there's a tremendous value in that and I wish that was more normal I, I don't expect other people to respond to my email at 8 p.m. I want you to be home with your family and you were saying how that's so counterculture it is it is yeah. so how do we change medicine from that kind of traditional dogma I love what you were saying about how we tie our work to our morality. How do we change that culture so that we can probably have less burnout and more fulfillment with our families, but still excel in medicine? Well, we absolutely can excel in medicine and maybe even excel at a higher level when we're making choices about what's really important. I think it's people like you, Andrea, that are gonna change the cultures and for me, it's my millennial children that have changed me and pushed back to me. And we were talking about, you know, I'm at the tail end of the boomers. And, you know, work was a moral, you know, it's a moral imperative. You know, your morality was how hard you work. And my kids are like, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> so they have really helped me reframe it. So I think it's going to be you, Andrea, and your colleagues and the younger people who come in and say, hey, let's get some reality, a reality check to all of this. And really being busy all the time is not necessarily being productive or efficient. Right. It's not necessarily doing things that are important. You know, one of the things that we're told is that the difference between being a human and like the Greek gods is in mythology, they live forever. So, you know, they don't have to make tough choices. Well, you know, we do because we only have, you know, 80 or 90 years if we're lucky. So we actually have to choose how we're going to spend it. And I think what you're saying is maybe we should be more careful about what we choose to spend our work time on. And, and maybe we should just do those top two or three or four things. Mm -hmm. You know, Warren Buffett says that. Pick the things that are important and do them and we'll say no to everything else if yeah. you want to do a good job. Yeah. It's hard. And our, like it's you hard. said too, Eric, our attention is divided when we're home and we're getting yeah. bombarded with emails and calls and, oh, I got to attend to this patient thing quick. And it, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, for everybody, it's a different balance of time and priorities and, and, and schedule. And I think, as I like what you're saying, is that through the reflection of 
experiencing those opportunities early in your career and being stretched, you end up learning what your gifts are, what your talents right. are, and what they're not. And sometimes right. you need to learn to say no to committees or opportunities because you know that that's not where you thrive and then invest in the areas and contribute to your department or your your practice in the areas you do. I agree. Um, so it's it's a matter of just that wisdom coming um, and being Really seasoned. getting to know yourself. Yeah. And being honest about it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and doing what you're good at. Yeah. yeah. What you're naturally good at. That's hard too. One of the things I greatly have appreciated about you in just a short time I've gotten to know you is you have a sense of joy. Oh yeah. And I, it's infectious. It's it brings. It's uplifting. Mm. Um, we all seek to do that with our patients mm -hmm. and our teams around us mm -hmm. to be able to bring compassion, friendship, love mm -hmm. um, to our patients, but those around us in this time of burnout is hard. Mm -hmm. So share. I mean, part of it is as you're sharing. There are tools you can do to make sure you are well internally before you can mm -hmm. share that to others. Right. But from managing a practice. We don't always get that from our colleagues day to day or other individuals yeah. around us. So share a little bit about, I mean, one is modeling potentially, but right. share a little bit how you work to cultivate those virtues amongst your, your, in yourself, in your family, in a practice. Yeah, well, um, I'll start by saying I, th I think it was part of my family culture, enjoying life. My dad always, always, always had a good time. Always. I mean, whatever we were doing, it was fun. Yeah. And or if not fun, fun's the wrong word, but meaningful and enjoyable. But I think the way to have joy in our work day to day, because it's hard work. We work so hard. But is to do a little bit what we were talking about earlier, just have a sense of the meaning and value in what we're doing. You know, when we go home and we're so tired, you know, we fall on the sofa and, you know, you barely can think about dinner, which happens a lot, mm -hmm. to just remind ourselves that what we're doing matters in life. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's what gives me the joy of my work is, you know, I'd rather be doing this than going up for coffee with my girlfriends, which is important and I want to do that, but I don't want to do that all day, every day. I love to ski. I'm a, I'm a raving skier. But I don't want to ski every day of my life because honestly, it's not that meaningful. It's fun and it's a release and I love it and I like to push myself, but it doesn't have that joy that seeing patients has. Yeah. Plus, pe human beings are just amazing. You know, so I love seeing human beings. The patients are the best part. Yeah. This morning we had a quality conference and I'm a little involved in those pieces here at Mayo, but one of the things that gets shared again and again is the needs of the patient come first. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a mantra here at Mayo and I think for mm -hmm. physicians in general that is. Yeah. But it so oftentimes gets into our strategy, mm -hmm. but I think that reminding that the needs of the patient come first in our culture or our joy and mm -hmm. what's driving us is is all the more important than working on the strategy behind it. And so I just appreciate mm -hmm. that you have that upbringing, but also that way of sharing it as modeling and, and just uh, appreciating that focus throughout your your day. And it's obviously mm -hmm. been a big part of your excelling in leadership. Thank you. Ruth, this was so wonderful. I've learned so much. Such a joyful conversation it was. all the way around. It thank, was. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it. And thank you for being here. Well. Eric and Andrea, thanks for having me. Look forward. Thank you again. Find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. 
Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more next week.